Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, Hunter Biden and the politicised FBI, the strange sympathy for Shamima Begum and the narcissism of Meghan Markle. So the FBI has been accused of political bias for allegedly playing a role in suppressing the Hunter Biden scandal. So Mark Zuckerberg was on Joe Rogan's podcast last week. He talked about how just before the New York Post dropped its um, big Hunter Biden revelation of the laptop from hell, the FBI were warning that there was about to be some foreign interference in the 2020 election. And now this week, there's been another explosive development with a leading FBI agent resigning, and he's been accused by one Republican Senator, Chuck Grassley, of essentially trying to interfere in FBI probes into Hunter Biden, um, stopping some probes prematurely, and also of helping to put about this idea that the Hunter Biden files were somehow disinformation. I mean, Tom, this is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? We're talking about, you know, an institution that should be completely uh, unpartisan, that justice is supposed to be famously blind. I mean, what do you make of it? Well, there's so much to claw over. I mean, I suppose the thing that's moved things on in recent days is this resignation from this Timothy Tebow character um, who denies that he had anything to do with any of the Hunter Biden allegations, we should say. But I think when you go back to the Zuckerberg stuff, which is kind of much more straight from the horse's mouth, you see the indirect, Mm. if not the direct role, that the FBI and the security services have been increasingly playing in American democracy in the Trump era. I mean, it's fascinating that he just comes out and says it. He's not particularly pressed. They're having a general conversation about how do you suppress certain stories. Hunter Biden comes up and he just offers this story of the fact that, again, in the run-up to that story coming out, as you say, that they'd effectively, Facebook had been told by FBI officials that we're getting ready for this big kind of dump of Russian mis- misinformation. Mm. Here are the sort of characteristics. Here's what you should be on your guard for. And so as a consequence of that, whilst they don't go the, the full extent that Twitter did as far as just completely suppressing the spreading of that story and locking the New York Post, um, whose story it was out of their accounts, but downgrading it in the news feeds, suppressing yeah. its spread whilst their fact checkers went to work on it and all the rest of it. And I think even in that example, first of all, the you see that sort of hand-in-glove relationship between the American security state and big tech, mm. which should is, is really genuinely chilling. And it's almost just because of the fact that they were kind of primed to react in this way that they seem to react in this way. Now, if you couple that with the fact that so much kind of social media moderation is then sort of outsourced to this other layer of sort of security yeah. experts or, or fact-checking experts or whatever, you just create a situation where there's an obviously a kind of predisposition towards censorship and censorship in a particular direction. Um, And whilst the kind of further allegations um, that Chuck Grassley and other people have made in relation to the FBI kind of repressing this story or trying to suppress this story from within, we'll see that kind of come out in the the wash in the weeks and months to come. Even the stuff that we know about is really, really suspect. You see this kind of systemic problem, if you like, which aligns 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 the censorship of the of the big tech platforms with the concern, shall we say, of the security services. And even, you know, that that open letter that 51 former intelligence officials and former heads of the CIA, et cetera, signed basically denouncing the Hunter Biden story back in October 2020, saying it was, even though they hadn't looked at it, it bared all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation, (laughs) that even though they couldn't um, guarantee that that's what it was, Mm. it again was something that people should be deeply suspicious for. 
you see this incredibly sinister relationship between one and the other. And it gets to the point where it's quite clear that when people talk about big tech censorship as like a private company thing, it's a lot more complicated than that. It does become a kind of arm of the state at yeah. moments like this. And, and isn't that, you know, we've talked about this a million times on the podcast before, but that's one of the problems with this term disinformation or misinformation, where it can be sort of wielded for partisan reasons, for reasons of protecting the establishment or things like that. You know, it's, it has nothing really to do with what is true or false. It's, it sounds exactly like uh, when Trump used to shout fake news or it's all yeah. China, basically. But then um, were Democrats and people who support Biden us pretty much saying, po pointing at Russia as like pressing the big red Russia button anytime there's anything that is compromising for them. Mm. And, you know, the, um, I mean, Tom makes a key point about big tech, big tech censorship in relation to um, what effect that has on public discourse. But it's also the case that, you know, in relation to the FBI or, or any of the kind of sort of politicos that were, and, and indeed, you know, newspaper journalists, reporters who were supposed to be sort of at least have the pretense of being in some way impartial or have a sense of what's good for politics about having a fair <clears throat> playing field, particularly in the run up to an election. You really recognize how corrosive the whole painting of Trump as this sort of devil incarnate immoral evil mm. figure has had because because he's been painted as that and not just politically objectionable and yeah. someone to have a row with during an election you have these individuals working in these places that are supposed to be it's a bit like you know it's sort of a bit like the civil service what's happening in the civil service in the uk you have individuals that's job it is to kind of rise above it deciding for themselves that they want to engage in this moral crusade mm. and that actually the the only thing to do and their main sort of MO has to be to stop this evil force. And so then you have, you know, it, you know, it should have, and it should do now in the future, reflect badly on um, the Biden presidency because it's, it's everything that they criticize Trump for, for yeah. being petulant, but also for being, you know, personalizing politics in this kind of a way. I mean, it's his son for Christ's sake. Um, that they have no kind of moral high ground to stand on any longer because they are copying the kind of you faked the election, everything's rigged against me, everything that isn't uh, you know, that I don't agree with um, is fake news. They're copying it by rote. In fact, actually, they were doing it before Trump. Yeah, yeah. And and that that has to be recognised. And and Tom, you know, just thinking about the kind of American security state under Biden, it is increasingly being turned against. Um, you know, Biden's political enemies, okay, you know, Trump supporters and things like that. Well, no, exactly. I mean, it's something that we've been talking about in the wake of the raid on Mar-a-Lago and mm. more details continue to tumble out about that. And, you know, I mean, something like that's a good example where I don't think anyone looking at that think Trump is completely whiter than white in any of these situations. <laughs> yeah. He never is. He is a bit of a crook. He does make stupid decisions and whether or not he's holding on to this information for, <laughs> it would probably be slightly ridiculous reasons and sinister reasons, no yeah. doubt. It gets increasingly difficult for people to take the interventions of whether it's the FBI or anyone else seriously, mm. given their track record with absolutely everything else. Um, and that's part of the picture. You can't ignore it, whether it was um, Merrick Garland, again, kind of sending, again, the sort of forces of the state effectively to go and um, investigate the protesters at school boards over critical race theory and COVID restrictions. Or you think about even back in 2016 and the kind of early bubblings of the Russiagate conspiracy, mm. Um, again, you saw a situation in which something like the Steele dossier, this now incredibly discredited piece of opposition research effectively against yeah. Trump, which ends up kind of 
getting picked up and almost laundered through the US security state, the FBI deciding that it's credible mm. um, as a consequence of this. They use this to basically surveil one of Trump's advisors, Carter Page. With, and then, of course, the story all eventually collapses, given yeah. the fact that the incredibly lurid allegations that were made against Trump, not just that he was Putin's puppet, but that he was cavorting with urinating Russian prostitutes and all the rest of it. That's going to give people a certain lack of trust, of course it is. And mm. then what's amazing is you sat that next to the Hunter Biden situation, which in terms of its luridness yeah. and in terms of its alleged corruption is a perfect match for what was saying in the Steele dossier. Yeah. I mean, we've, you know... The, the, <laughs> and there actually are pictures there rather actually than are just tapes, tape. which you can go yeah. and, it, and, it, and it's real and it's been you know corroborated yeah. and yeah. that was that was treated as these <laughs> these materials exist and we know that these things exist that's disinformation yeah but the steel dossier which turned out to be complete bollocks mm. is obviously right and true yeah. and we should again kind of adjust our investigations towards it how is that not going to completely corrode trust and how is that not going to make people quite rightly say that even if this isn't sort of coordinated even if there's an element of it being sort of unconscious yeah that this bias is very real and very significant and it pales into you know and it's it's power when you combine say the u.s security state with the big tech platforms is is, is undeniable really and Ella, i mean isn't it often the case that sometimes the censorship is is worse than the crime i can't imagine that we would have been talking you know for so long about hunter biden and his antics you know this is completely unimportant to us there are obviously much more serious questions to answer about his corruption and things like that, mm -hmm. but that might not be an international story in the way that it, it's become. I mean, the censorship is just so incredibly serious. Yes, and, and it's also just incredibly naive to think that in this day and age, you can censor these kinds of things because inevitably, particularly you know, in the run-up to an election, the amount of dirt digging that's going on, all that kind of stuff, it's just, it seems like a terrible tactic for them. And I, you know, I think it will, and I hope it will have some effect on, you know, people commenting on Biden's presidency and the way in which he handles these things, because he is no friend of free speech. But the thing I was thinking about as well is that, you know, to rewind back to Tom saying that it's kind of remarkable that Zuckerberg just sort of, you know, spills out mm. this information. Mm. Is that you? It's funny that no one's really asked him before. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Before this but he's place. but he's this kind of you know it, he's the owner and the creator of this huge thing that's had such a huge impact on the world, and even he, along with everyone else, paints social media and you know the and the internet as this incredibly dirty, terrible, terrifying thing. So even he, the person who sort of owns the internet almost, owns the main kind of one of the main communicating platforms on the internet is just obsessed with this idea that you cannot let people get information or certain kinds of information. And, you know, in terms of democracy and particularly in the run-up to an election, that is such a corrosive idea in and of itself, mm. that the idea that you have to control what kind of information people get, not in terms of like decisions that people make in campaigning material and controlling the narrative, but in terms of, you know, what people are actually allowed to research and have access to. And you would struggle, <laughs> bar spite, at really, and a few sort of other honourable mentions, to find anyone who will stand up for the idea that the internet is this democratic, exciting tool. Or should be. <laughs> or should be. And that actually the vision of 
of you know mass communication being something that meant that you could take power away from mm. the people at the top, whether it's the FBI or indeed the president mm. and his son, or indeed Facebook, or, or indeed huge you know million billion zillionaires who are um, who run communications and dis and have the kind of power among the every man and woman is kind of com- it's completely lost. And, and I think that's a really bad thing. And the f- the fact that they increasingly look like very interconnected institutions, mm. by which I mean something like the U.S. Security Services. Facebook, and then the kind of broader corporate press. Because the Hunter Biden story is such a, a terrifying illustration of how they're all kind of swimming in the same water to a certain yeah. extent. You have the kind of concerns and the potentially the political prejudices of the US security state, which then kind of feed into what gets leaked to the press. This is one of Grassley's allegations, you know, that when he and another senator were doing their own investigations into Hunter Biden, even before the laptop story mm. comes out, that um, the FBI demand on having this briefing with them, which then becomes a pretext to say that, you know, we think that a lot of this is disinformation, that the knowledge of this briefing and this assessment gets leaked to the press, the merry-go-round goes round again. And same with Facebook. Facebook is, is fascinating as well because you get a snapshot in that interview of how he doesn't really want to make these decisions, Zuckerberg. Yeah. So you get this all really unholy marriage of like um, corporate sort of cowardice mm. on his part or kind of corporate press gullibility on the part of the media. And these other interests which are there, and it just creates such a fearsome combination. And as much as we've talked about in this podcast, about you know the the nonsense that Trump was spewing after the election and the corrosive impact of that, and all the rest of that, you take all of those things together. So it's a lot more powerful and a lot more consequential in so many ways than yeah. Trump. You know, fog horning is nonsense. Well, they, yeah, they never media. listened to Trump. No, the, part <laughs> of the thing was that nobody ever listened to Trump, but yeah. and he was kicked off of those platforms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're watching The Spikes Podcast. While you're here, you should subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell so you never miss a video. But even better, to keep up with all of Spikes content, all of our brilliant articles and essays that we publish every weekday, you should sign up to our newsletter today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spikes content, plus some exclusive commentary. To sign up, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and click today on Spiked. That's spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and today on Spiked. Now back to the Spiked podcast. So there's been a twist in the tale of Shamima Begum, the ISIS bride who fled from London to Syria. A new book has revealed that one of the ISIS operatives who essentially helped her get into get from Turkey to Syria was working as an informant for the Canadian security services. Now, this story has kind of been taken, I think, and sort of blown a little bit out of proportion, I think it's fair to say. People are now saying this is evidence that she was trafficked or that she was deliberately moved to Syria by a Western spy, mm. by, you know, the Western security agencies that somehow, you know, this changes everything. Yeah. Tom, what have you made of it? No, I think it's that's what's been striking about it was how people clearly haven't read beyond the headlines of this particular story. Yeah. This is a striking development insofar as the knowledge, the fact that the Canadian security services were after the fact aware of the fact that, um, you know, Shamima Begum and her two friends had crossed the border into ISIS territory. Um, but again, it's being presented as like Canadian spy whisks them across the border. Yeah. Which is not, I mean, he was an ISIS human trafficker turned snitch, effectively who was passing on details of the passports of the people he was taking across the border after the fact to his handler yeah. um, with, with the Canadians. 
And so that's kind of got a lot lost in the mix. I mean, it's significant insofar as when this um, hunt for the um, Bethnal Green goes, girls was going on, the Canadian security services were keeping very quiet. Mm. You then have this um, allegation made in this new book by the Sunday Times journalist about, again, the role that then the British state makes in trying to kind of keep quiet on this. But it's just so quickly folded into the narrative which has been going for so long now, which is that Shamima Begum didn't really know what she was doing, yeah. that she was subject to forces outside of her control, she was trafficked, she had no choice in the matter, which even her own statements make clear is not the case. Mm. So I think this, as with so many of the things in this particular story, I mean, it's significant and it's interesting on its own terms. Almost the cover-up is, is worse than the crime, it seems, in many respects. Um, but it just so quickly becomes folded into that kind of tears for Shamima mm. narrative, which has been around this story since she cropped up again back in 2019. Yeah, Ella, what do you make of the tears for Shamima thing? Because, you know, as we said, she's been acute. She's essentially been portrayed as a victim of trafficking, a victim of grooming by, you know, ISIS kind of uh, recruiters and a victim of racism, essentially, mm. after she had her citizenship taken off her. It's remarkable because, you know, it'd be one thing if there was, and, and you know, there is an argument that has to be had legally in terms of the age that she was when she left. It'd be one thing if people just stuck to that and said, because she was 15, then it raises these questions about um, her movements. But that's not what happens. What happens is that, you know, despite the fact that you have simultaneously, you know, discussions about lowering the voting age, discussions yeah. about how children, children uh, at the age of 15 and lower should be able to handle very adult concepts and all the rest of it, that, you know, it's completely impossible for this young woman to have had any kind of independent thought about what she was doing, despite the fact that in the interviews that everybody seems to have forgotten in 2019, yeah. um, she was pretty clear, even though she'd just been through some quite horrendous stuff with losing children, she was pretty clear about saying, beheadings didn't really bother me. I knew that was happening. I saw heads in bins. Yeah, yeah I, you know, that. And it was essentially justified with her. Even then she was still yeah. saying that stuff. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's quite obvious to anyone. You don't have to kind of be a sort of secret agent, you know, well-schooled in kind of how ISIS runs to understand that at the time of her and the other Bethel Green girls departing, mm. we knew a fair amount about this death cult. They weren't yeah. kind of secret. We knew a fair amount about their views on women. The, mm. These girls were brought up in London, in East London, a place where they would have seen people like me walking around. And they can tell the difference between going somewhere where women are treated very differently to where they're treated um, in their own home country. So there was a there was a decision that was made here and mm. they were very enthusiastic about it. Um, then, you know, I think the, the problem with the Shamima Begum thing is she gets turned into either sort of this saint or sinner. And, you know, have more I have more sympathy for the sinner argument because ISIS is a death cult and she was involved in the kind of just genocidal destruction, um, even if she didn't physically wield the knife. But there is, you know, questions. She more did wield a Kalashnikov. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. As part of the morality police. Mm. But, you know, that, I think there are, there are interesting and difficult questions to be asked about citizenship, about, you know, I'm very uncomfortable the way in which Sajid Javid just plucked her citizenship more broadly for questions about how the Home Secretary and the UK treat citizenship as a whole. But all of that interesting, important debate gets lost by people sort of saying, you're an Islamophobe because you can't accept the 15-year-old girl got trafficked. Yeah. And it just simplifies it right down into this ridiculous sort of, um, almost a parody of actually the seriousness of what's happened. Tom? No, I think that's right. Insofar as there's just a refusal to even recognise that she is an 
uh, an agent in any kind of sense that yeah. she had any um, autonomy that she made any of her own decisions and that the choice that she made was so morally depraved yeah there's been so much this guy I mean particularly comparing her to a victim of trafficking I think is almost specifically and particularly grotesque given say the ISIS atrocities in relation to the Yazidis and the selling of young girls into yeah. sexual slavery and all this kind of stuff uh, which some things which Shamima Vagan would have been completely aware of if, if um, not involved in if not involved the, in know, we, when we, we spoke know, to but... when we spoke to a kind of Yazidi spokesperson a few years ago she said that it was you know often it was ISIS brides people like Shamima mm -hmm. who would prepare you know basically put makeup on women for their husbands to rape them mm -hmm. you know so it, it, this idea that yeah she's just in the kitchen it's just absurd. It's not. It's not true. And and exactly. And then also reports about her stitching suicide vest, being involved with the morality police, all this yeah. sort of stuff, and the fact that she was unrepentant after the fact. Like even in 2019, when she gave this interview to, I forget, it was the Times or the Sunday Times, um, again, clearly not having reformed in any way, shape, or form, and yet still the willingness was, oh, she's just a young person who's made a mistake. Mm. It just, it almost, I think, it speaks to a kind of lack of moral seriousness that you recognise that this organisation and the people who have opted to join it have decided to essentially repudiate everything that this society stands for or or anything that a good society should should you know aspire to stand for and so and again on the other hand there's all, I think that also flows into people's kind of incredulity around the decisions that were taken because roughly speaking I think the stripping of her of her citizenship similarly around the same time the stripping of the citizenship of Jack Letts Jahani yeah. Jack joint British and Canadian citizen um, who, of course, is never gets brought up because he explodes the idea that this is all about racism, effectively. Mm. It was clearly a, a very blunt instrument used to try and stop particularly high-profile jihadists from returning in a context in which they had in, in obviously very feeble legal means to detect and punish um, returning jihadist fighters. Mm. You know, it, like As of last year, it was something like 900, we reckon, went out to Syria from the UK about half have come back and like just over a dozen ended up getting prosecuted. Yeah. So in that context, you can understand why certain decisions were made, but it does raise very difficult and uncomfortable questions about the nature of citizenship, nature of what it means to make someone stateless. Whose problem is Shamima Begum mm. is another one. You know, should we just be pushing Shamima Begum on Bangladesh or should we be pushing Jack Letts on Canada when these people were, were radicalised inside this country? They, they dispatch themselves to Syria often you know, um, to a shock response from their own parents and communities. This is, you know, a kind of homegrown problem. All of that we can definitely talk about. How should we deal with them when they get back? What does that look like? Hmm. But I think that's got to start from a position of, of recognising the serious decision that they have made and the fact that they made that decision themselves rather than just being sort of brainwashed into it or taken against their will. And, and Ella, finally, I mean, what do you make of the kind of uh, Islamophobia kind of accusation in particular, that the reason that you know, people hate Shamima um, is because they're Islamophobic or the reason she was treated this way is just down to anti-Muslim prejudice. I mean, you know, surely it's not a normal thing for Muslims to do to join ISIS. No, and this isn't the same as someone kind of, you know, making prejudice comments about halal meat or something. It's not your, it's, this isn't your kind of, your run of the mill sort of um, Muslim opinion about Islam that Shamima Begum is expressing. Mm. Or, and ISIS isn't your kind of, run-of-the-mill Islam. It, you know, it's not just a religious no, conservative. No. <laughs> it, it, this is a very specific thing that's different to the beliefs that millions of people in this country hold 
you know, normal, moderate religious beliefs um, as Muslims. So it's a to- saying that is actually a total and, you know, people, we've made this point on this podcast before as a total insult to Muslims because it's suggesting that you're all in the same boat, um, which is really prejudiced. But, you know, the question that Tom asks about whose problem is Shamima Begum is a really important one that is getting lost because if you make the argument that she was brainwashed and that she, you know, it was just that she kind of sat on YouTube for two weeks straight or something and got hoodwinked by the music and the ISIS videos and that kind of stuff, then what you're denying is the fact that if she was able to be brainwashed, then the values of the society that she lived in and the school that she went to and the neighborhood she lived in, I mean, she, Christ's sake, she lived in Bethnal Green, not in, under a rock somewhere, mm. um, had failed. So actually the problem, one of the part of the question is, what is the problem with British society or British values, to use that term? Or Western society or, where many... Uh, yeah, indeed, in other countries that we, are, that we are losing the battle with these young people. And it's, you know, de- the whole question of domestic homegrown terrorists who have been brought up, you know, even in some cases, smoking dope, going to parties, you know, having sex with people, with, this, with some of these young men, and then deciding to revert to this extreme, um, you know, death cult. Well, the question is, what are we failing to do? What are we, how are we failing to not brainwash them, but convince them that this is the better life and these are the better values? Um, so the, the brainwashing argument just seems to me like such a cop-out because actually what you're saying is it's nothing to do with us when in fact it is a lot to do with us. And the failure to recognise this failure within, particularly within British society by constantly just saying, pointing outside of the box and saying it's Islamophobia or it's, it's, you know, some, it's because it's so exciting in Syria, things like that, is a real kind of cowardly response to what needs to be, you know, ourselves looking in the mirror and saying, what do we need to do and what do we need to get more fervent about talking about um, in order to stop this happening in the future, because they are still going over. There are st- there are still terrorist attacks. Shamima Begum is someone mm. that yeah. whose actions happened in the past, but she, you know, <laughs> she is being replicated again and again. Well, I, I agree with that up to a point. I think that, and you know, there's all sorts of questions we could ask ourselves about what is it that um, is not providing that kind of core, that sort of centre, you know, the splintering effect of multiculturalism, the inability of British society or Western society to be able to stick up for itself. I'm sensitive to all that. I think the difficulty is it can also become its own form of sort of um, stripping them of their choices that they've made, yeah. if you see what I mean. That can easily sort of spill into a, into a sort of sense of what have we done to create this sort of situation. And I think that, again, kind of feeds into a, a stripping of the of the moral agency of these people when they make these decisions. And also, um, sometimes I think there's a bit of a lack of seriousness about the threat that specifically that is posed, because mm. even though there are very cat-candid responses to this, when people say what we should do is just bring her back and try her in our courts and we should rise above it and all the rest of it, that seems to, there seems to be no recognition of the fact that we are just at the moment kind of legally fundamentally incapable of bringing these people to justice in any meaningful sense because of the state of our laws, because of the fact that we often don't know when these people can get back into the country. Um, and also the fact that many of the atrocities they'll be involved with happened in Syria. Yeah. You know, there's no kind of, here's witness A for this particular case. So you're left with kind of slightly more meagre offences in which you could prosecute them under. So there's all of these kind, kinds of problems that are raised by the fact. But I think, again, it just comes back to that, that, that situation which you have someone who decides to repudiate everything that Western society stands for, effectively become um, an enemy of a lot of, the, a lot of the values that we would aspire to hold dear. And yet the response is to not take that seriously 
as a statement to to assume that it was the product of kind of youthful frivolity or um, something that we've done mm. that's gone wrong along the way. And I think whatever shakes out of this, it's going to roll on for a couple of years, I'm sure. That desire to get kind of morally serious about this particular threat, I think is probably the most important thing. So earlier this week, uh, Meghan Markle gave, I think it's fair to say, a belter of an interview. Um, some really kind of choice examples of her kind of narcissism, her strained relationship to the truth, I think it's fair to say. Tom, you read it, so we didn't have to. It's like six and a half thousand words long, this profile. Yeah. It's great. We should say alleged relationship to the truth because I think the kind of details speak for themselves. Um, it's her truth. It's her, her truth, truth, exactly, which um, we, is not for us to comment upon. <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll probably get to that in a second. It's an amazing thing to read anyway, just because of it's sort of like a spectacular failure of self-awareness, particularly on Megan's part. You almost feel like the journalist is almost nodding and winking at you to a certain extent, mm. <laughs> because it's so silly. I mean, it just begins with uh, being the journalist being ushered into this palatial mansion at which she begins to sit down, talk about all of the new fixtures and fittings they got in, and then talk about how she's had such a terrible time of it. It's amazing <laughs> on that respect. Just the the level of cringe is almost profound. Mm. It's incredible. Everything from there's a palm, two palm trees interwoven, which Harry and Meghan say, it's us <laughs> talking about our love. At one point, Harry starts beatboxing. I mean, it's just <laughs> the, the, the levels of just this kind of unself-aware sort of misfiring hallmark card generator mm. aspect that she has to her and Harry does as well is is absolutely stunning. The particular claims that are made, as you say, I mean, my, the, suggesting that when she was at the premiere of the live action 2019 remake of The Lion King, that a South African actor took her to one side and said that when you two got married, we celebrated on the streets as we did when Mandela was freed. <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. Has since been called into question because mm. the Daily Mail found the only South African cast member and he does not remember this conversation. And, and Mandela's well, son is not happy about he's this. He's not either. happy about it. <laughs> he said this is a bit, you can't equate the two was the slightly kind <laughs> way in which he talked about it. But you do just get a real sense of this is the this is the story that she's told herself. It is Megan's long walk to freedom. Yeah. Uh, the freedom to make exorbitant amounts of money talking about herself in long magazine profiles and her new podcast. But it, it's um I think there's a I think there's a turn against Megan now. People are finding it very difficult to sort of mm. um back her up as wholeheartedly as they did before because she is so ridiculous, but she is a sort of a monster created by a liberal media that took so many of her allegations at face value and also just readily interpreted any criticism of what is obviously a very ridiculous and haughty individual <laughs> as proof positive of racism. Mm. And those two tendencies have created this ridiculous character. And I think a lot of people now are starting to to realise just how ridiculous that character is, I guess. I mean, Ella, that's the thing, isn't it? It's identity politics that, that has created the f alleged fascination with Meghan. She's not, you know... She's not a great talent. She's not. Um, she's not well loved. She's not. Public. She ranks below Prince, uh, just above Prince Andrew. Just above Prince on Andrew. the YouGov oh table of that. royals. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing because she because she knows how to hit the kind of identity politics buzzwords, mm. and because she makes these really um, you know extraordinary claims if they're true, like mm. the fact that members of the British press use the N word in relation to her and her kids and just drops out of nowhere yeah, as well yeah. to the point is, where you think and when you think you, you think if you actually genuinely care about anti-racism 
tell us who it is so that that can be dealt with. You know, yeah, like, yeah. you know, the part of the whole thing of being an active anti-racist is that you stop things. You don't just kind of hint towards them. Um, but it's also, it's it's true that because she's become this sort of identity politics figure, she's been able to completely mask the question of class or even just sort of like dripping wealth in relation to her. And just deflect all these criticisms. Yeah. Well, you know. And yeah. there's um, on Twitter, the kind of the way that the cut, which was the magazine that did the interview with her, was selling it was they had this sort of strap line of... Um, the kids are doing fine and Harry's found a polo team in Santa Barbara. <laughs> now, you know, now Megan is able to tell her story and it's like, oh my God, who Finally. wrote that? It's no, so I good. was reading it thinking, this is a piss take. You're, <laughs> you're taking the piss out of this woman. You, you, because, you can't tell like, as it goes through. It's amazing. You know, the yeah, whole so. thing about, you know, there has been this trend so long in the royal family since Diana, you know, the people's princess and it's the anniversary of her death this week. And everyone's talking about that kind of like the move of, um, of the royals into celebrity status yeah. has been, you know, it's Meghan Markle didn't invent that. That has been around for, you know, since Diana. Um, but there's, she turns it into this kind of warped version in which it's not just like kissing kids and hugging hospital mm. patients, but it's this kind Talking of like, herself. it's just completely about herself. I yeah. mean, she's the whole brand that they've got is named after their son and the podcast or whatever it is, is called Ar Archetypes. Archetypes. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's such a monstrous kind of narcissism. Um, and the only thing I, I can think of. I made the Archie connection with Archetypes. I thought oh, that it's was a all Jungian Archie reference. stuff. <laughs> and they have like an Ar Archie oat latte. Archwell and, yeah. is like the company or something. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, or charity, I should it's say. It's gross, actually, kind of, in, in the way in which it's so self indulgent. But the, the only good thing I can think of is the more people start to realise that this is the way in which the royals are heading, because to a lesser degree, William and Kate do a similar thing. Yeah. They're not as kind of, they, they're a bit more sort of poised than Harry and Meghan, <laughs> but there's a similar thing in which it's like all about me. It's about my charities and the way that I feel and I have to display myself and blah, blah, blah. Um, and you hope that the more the royals get revealed to be this kind of... Um, sort of leechified celebrity um sort of amalgam then hopefully people will start calling into question as to whether or not we need them anymore so i think carry on running your mouth megan <laughs> because it's only doing those of us who believe in constitutional change some good was, or maybe i'm just being optimistic well, but it was them having left i mean it was kind of interesting as well because it was you know them leaving was like we don't want to be the cambridges we want to be the obamas yeah. they want to kind of join that kind of like global elite so you kind of go to a conference you're the something something ambassador for mm -hmm. <laughs> this or that company you talk endlessly about yourself and what's amazing is they're just so bad at it i mean like because being really egotistical and thinking you're really worthy and you care about all these causes there's nothing new in hollywood but usually there's a bit of talent or yeah. charm mm. to balance it out and there's none of that <laughs> like it's all kind of <laughs> completely you really sing a song or something yeah like... you've got something to fall back on but <laughs> beatboxing, all you've, beatboxing um, or acting in, yeah. in megan's case but um but i'm saying that she's been in, but it is i think it does just come down like archetypes particularly if you listen to any of these episodes it's like a damning indictment of our age in a weird sort of way. It's just in an era when like the person is political, banging on about yourself endlessly becomes like an act of activism. Mm. And I think she's bad at it, more cringy than most at it, but is almost just the sort of um, logical extension of so much of our politics these days, which is talking about yourself endlessly in a very navel-gazing way about your oppression, about your victimhood, about your vulnerability, about your experiences and how much they've damaged you. Um is just treated as if it's like politics now when it's not. It's just navel-gazing and, and always has been. She's just worse at it than other people, I think. 
Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.